Hi Jane, how you doing? Now it's the morning. Uh, I wonder if you've had your morning cup of coffee yet. No, I haven't had any coffee yet. I've had tea. I'm a tea drinker in the morning. And what do you think of coffee? Is it something that's really important to you? Yeah, I really love coffee, but I usually only have one cup a day, round about 11-ish. And how do you take it? Do you make it yourself or do you, do you have some kind of special method? Well, if there's a group of us, we've usually got about three or four people in the office. So if there are that many of us, we would have coffee made with a French press. Um, and if it's just my husband and I, we will have, we've got a coffee, um, a stovetop coffee maker, an espresso maker, um, and we'll warm up some milk. Right. Well, I am going to confess here. I have been through various, various different guises of being an absolute coffee diva. Um, I've, you name it, I've got every single device under the sun. This morning, I have got <laughs> instant, which I never have. I, I never use instant coffee, but someone introduced me to this uh, rather good kind of instant blend, which is perfect. I was just taking the dog out. I need something in my hand, um, but I will have a cup. And I now rely on this machine, which you'll hear in a minute bubbling away. I have a very, very bog standard filter machine, which kind of bubbles away. But do, when you go out, what do you have? Um, if I'm out, I would always go for a flat white. I used to drink a lot of lattes, but I just find it's too sweet now. That that volume of milk just makes it really, really sweet. Lovely, but sweet and not quite strong enough. I really, really like a Cortado, which I think is Spanish. It's like an espresso with a small amount of hot milk I think as well so it's, I, I really love those but you, you're not many places do it but I don't know what, what is your relationship with coffee though is it is it something you need every day when we started thinking about this podcast Martin I did think that you know what is my relationship with coffee I would say I really enjoy it and I really care about where it comes from um, but if I had to give up tea or coffee I'm afraid I'd have to give up coffee I just love tea it's my go-to yeah I think I think you know, having been through all those various different guises of loving coffee, I think I've got to the point now where I don't have a relationship with it as much as I used to. And I just see it as something that is part of my day. I need it quickly. And I think, you know, I was in Rome for quite a while. And the model there is you go to catch a train, you go to a small little bar, you have a quick cup of coffee for a euro and you move on. And I think that's kind of how I feel about it. And before we go any further, there's just one quote that I want to bring to you. The late, great Anthony Bourdain said, I like coffee, but I don't want to have to wait for it. And I don't want it with the cast of friends. It's a beverage and it's not a lifestyle. Now, I think there are people in this episode who are going to disagree. So what would you like to find out in this episode? Oh, this episode has been such a joy to think about and I'm really looking forward to speaking to two people that I know um, and it's just lovely to get them and their thoughts out into the world when talking about coffee. The first is Conrad Britz. I heard him speak at the Do Lectures about seven or eight years ago and he's an incredible guy. He's passionate about people, um, about coffee and really has such wisdom about how to make food systems and and coffee the coffee supply chain better so i'm really really looking forward to speaking to conrad 
and then a young woman that I've got to know through the youth work that we've done with the rural youth project that I set up back in 2018. We met a girl called Fionn Stora-Jones and since her late teens she's been involved with fair trade coffee uh, she comes from Wales and she's got to know uh, coffee growers in Uganda. Now that she's she's an adult, she works in Brussels and she and a friend of hers have set up a social enterprise uh, buying coffee from a women's co-op in, in Uganda. So I'm really looking forward to speaking to Fionn about how that social enterprise is going. It was such a pleasure to catch up with Conrad. Coffee has transformed and defined and enriched my life. It's such a sexy thing from just the aromatics of when you're roasting it. Um, and now all the ways you can drink it. And so little happens to, it trans to transform it from when it's picked off a tree to when you drink it that you can really stay connected to, to its origins. Conrad Britz is CEO and founder of Falcon Coffee. They're a speciality green coffee trader sourcing from 26 origins on behalf of over 1,000 roasters. So how does this coffee aficionado like to drink his morning brew? I found out. My preferred way is, uh, is French press, cafetiere, because I can make it for one or two or three or four people um, really easily. The things to care about is the quality of your water. Um, having a water filter makes a significant difference to the quality of your coffee. The volume of coffee to water, um, I can't give you the, the grams to millilitres, but you know my rule of thumb is I don't like too strong a cup of coffee, so it's a heaped tablespoon per cup, and if I get up to three or four, I'll add one more to the pot. And infusion time is four minutes, and I'll set a timer for that on my smartphone. Time it for four minutes. Press and pour. And the reason coffee smells so fantastic is it's oxidizing so quickly. And then where you buy your coffee, find a local roastery, buy it in small quantities regularly. Uh, drink it quickly. <laughs> drink lots. Um, so that would be, yeah, that would be my recommendation. And I'm sure I'll take a beating uh, from the, the, the coffee geeks who, who, who might listen to this podcast. Welcome to the Science Behind Your Salad from BASF. In each episode, we seek out the best produce and examine the culture and history behind a crop. We'll examine how the crop is grown today and we'll be looking ahead into the future, what's coming down the line for the crop and the products that it yields. Today, the magical beans that keep billions of us ticking over every day. Coffee. Long, straight and black. Hot, black, strong coffee. A flat white with oat milk or an Americano. I just want that little Kickstarter. We order in fresh beans and then we grind them ourselves a couple of times a week so that it's always fresh. A strong black coffee to start my day. I absolutely love a latte. There's something about getting that wonderful long cup of coffee. There is a moment every morning that I really feel a lift and the world just seems better. Caffeine is my only drug. I treat myself to black coffee, specifically with hot milk. It is just a few moments to myself before I begin the day. 
and it's super important to me having that cup of coffee in the morning just switches that light bulb on and gets me going. For me, it's a flat white and it just makes me feel better. I drink it black. If I'm at home, I will make a cafetiere. If I'm out, I'll have an Americano. I don't like it too strong though. Um, I'd normally have two cups of coffee a day, but if I'm feeling really reckless, I might have three. I love a cappuccino. I can't just drink coffee. It's the event of making it that I really like. I just have to have that coffee. I have to have something to look forward to in the day. I would much more readily give up wine and alcohol than give up coffee. Coffee consumption has almost doubled in the last three decades and right now about three billion cups are drunk every day. If that trend continues, consumption could double by 2050, just when the crop is under its most pressure. Global warming temperatures mean up to half of current coffee farmland could soon be unusable, whilst climate change is already having a devastating impact on yields. We'll be asking what the future looks like for coffee growers and drinkers, and we'll dive into the history of coffee in just a moment. But first, the story of coffee is as much a tale of social enterprise as it is growing methods. Here's Conrad again. So uh, we pay our bill by buying raw coffee beans uh, in producing countries, uh, 22 of them around the world, and then selling those beans and delivering them to over 1,300 coffee roasting companies in 52 destinations. The communities producing coffee by and large, are uh, they're vulnerable. Um, they're vulnerable through lack of personal security, lack of financial security, and poverty, um, lack of access to resources, you know, money, capital, working capital, debt capital, uh, market access, um, agronomy training, you know, all of these things. Um, so, really been been interested in in supply chain economics and coffee is produced by about 50 countries um, and these countries all sit within the tropics. Coffee is indigenous to Ethiopia um, and, and Uganda, Congo. Um, it's a it's a tropical um, tree. And, and then the profile of farmers is these are outside of Brazil. These are not large landholders, these are small-scale farmers. About 12.5 million smallholder farmers produce most of the world's coffee. So I've been really interested in, in how do we build um, and reconfigure supply chains by improving life and working conditions of, of small-scale farmers. The importance of a secure supply chain is a theme we'll return to later on. But where does coffee come from? And what did early versions of our coffee taste like? Professor Jonathan Morris is known as the coffee historian. He's based in the University of Hertfordshire and his work focuses on the history of consumption, commodities and foods. And he's the author of a book called Coffee, A Global History. And so it was a real treat to talk to him. What uh, coffee is, is a sort of a, a shrub that produces these uh, red cherries, which have a stone in the middle of them. And we, of course, just use the very centre of that stone these days, which are obviously the, the seeds of the coffee. 
the way that originally coffee was being used was you would also use the dried fruit. So you essentially would dry the cherries down as so you get the kind of desiccated cherry and they would use the desiccated skin of the cherries as well as the berries and make a drink using that which obviously is a fairly fruity uh, tasting drink. The coffee plant that we use primarily grows wild in southwest Ethiopia, uh, the region around Kaffa and we know that the tribes, uh, the indigenous peoples around there were foraging coffee Around the 15th century, at some point, they began exporting, as it were, that foraged coffee over to Yemen. And we know that a demand started for coffee as a product, primarily initially to fuel the Sufi religious ceremonies. Um, so the Sufis used to hold uh, religious ceremonies at which they consumed a drink that they called kawa. Kawa was really used to help them with their meditations, to help them sort of uh, enter into a kind of a state of, I suppose, heightened uh, concentration. This kawa was originally though, used for that, the hallucinogenic drug cat, uh, which is a kind of a chewable plant. But increasingly, they substituted that with a beverage called Kisha, which was made from uh, the coffee plant and the coffee berries. And so that's the sort of the start of coffee as an international kind of commodity. And within about 100 years or so, the Yemenis were themselves growing coffee up in the sort of the mountainous part of Yemen. Coffee then began to be traded up and down the Red Sea and out among really the kind of the Muslim diaspora. And so up until really the 1700s, this was really the centre of coffee production, the centre of coffee trade. The Ottoman Empire, which by that point uh, kind of controlled or had influence over the whole of those sort of Arabian and Red Sea territories, uh, kind of exercised a monopoly over coffee. By the time that coffee reached the heart of the Ottoman Empire, as it were, Istanbul, we see a bit of a change. There we see something closer to the coffee drink we know today, the sort of the much more darkly roasted coffee, the much more crushed coffee, the coffee powder. So probably around the 1600s or so, coffee is beginning to look more like what we now uh, think of as coffee. And, and Jonathan, in terms of popularity, you know, it, it's now such a, an ever-present part of our lives, the coffee culture, and, and just about in, in every country in the world. How did coffee become as popular as it has become? Very quickly, it becomes actually a kind of a socially legitimate drink. What that means is that it's legitimate to go out and socialise and we see the foundation of the first coffee houses. We think that probably coffee probably first arrived into uh, non-Ottoman Europe through Venice as the, as the trading port of the time. But where we see the coffee houses take off is actually, first of all, in London. Uh, this is Britain's great moment in, in coffee history because the, the first coffee houses are founded there. And again, coffee becomes this sort of drink that becomes quite a, a social drink, a networking drink. Coffee houses begin to assume all kinds of functions as places to meet and do business and so forth. By the 1700s, there's a lot of pressure. I mean, there's a lot of demand for coffee. 
and it becomes increasingly difficult to fulfill that demand just by obtaining coffee, in part because the Ottoman authorities are quite keen to retain their monopoly on it, and um, in part simply because there isn't enough coffee being grown. The European colonial companies began planting coffee in other places. Um, the Dutch uh, started, they planted coffee uh, in the east, in, uh, in Indonesia, first of all in Java, and the rest of the European powers uh, fairly swiftly started planting in the Caribbean. And so during the 18th century, the centre of coffee production was very much in the Caribbean, and uh, this was, of course, all done by using enslaved labour. The next sort of phase of that comes really more in the 19th century when coffee becomes more of an industrial product. It's the first big mass market develops in the United States. And that market is also developed by the fact that Brazil supplies that market and Brazil massively expands its coffee production, funnels what becomes cheaper and cheaper coffee to the US. That develops a mass market, which means that in turn, bigger profits can be made on bigger volumes without actually putting up prices. Post the Second World War, we have kind of coffee becoming an everyday product through much of Europe, America and areas of overseas, notably sort of Japan and the, 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 the early developing economies there. Also, we see the introduction of a second type of coffee plant into the system, which is a, a plant called Robusta. Uh, Robusta is a slightly hardier plant, and it's adopted in uh, particularly West Africa. This becomes a, a very cheap commodity coffee that is used in a new form of coffee product, which is the kind of instant coffee. So we see the development of soluble coffee. And again, although soluble coffees were around in the first half of the 20th century, really Nescafe, etc., really are from the mid-century on. So for most of the 20th century, then coffee becomes this kind of everyday kind of global commodity. What's happened in the 21st century is that that's shifted again as coffee's become kind of more of a lifestyle product. And we've seen the growth, obviously, of the kind of the international coffee chain format, as it were, around Starbucks, the use of coffee drinks that are, are quite different in some ways from those that we would normally prepare in the homes. You have the cappuccinos, the cafe lattes, the flat whites, and so forth. Nowadays, most coffee is probably produced by actually relatively small farmers probably 85-90% of coffee is by smallholders, often organised into cooperatives because they have very small, small holdings. But the problems that we have is that that coffee trade is often very unremunerative. As a commodity trade, the price is very much linked to a global price, so the price can kind of go up and down. It's extremely volatile. But there is one aspect to coffee that has made it very popular, and it's not just that it tastes good. It helps that it's addictive. Um, you know, <laughs> there's billions of people around the world who, um, uh, who who can't really start their day without it. Once you've had a great cup of coffee, it's really difficult to go back to drinking lousy coffee. Here's Conrad once again on some of the modern growing methods and practices. So there are two main types of coffee, which would be the Arabica variety and, and Robusta. And Arabica tends to be your 
uh, more expensive filter coffees. Robustas are often going to soluble or instant coffees and, and a lot of your Mediterranean espresso. Anyway, Arabica is indigenous to Ethiopia and Robusta, you know, moving west along that tropical axis is indigenous to Uganda and the Congo. Production spread. There was a, I think there was a time when, uh, when Mexico supplied a, most of the world's coffee or at least half of it, but Brazil very quickly took over under the Portuguese and, and Brazil today produces about 40% of the world's coffee. But coffee's dreadful past left a legacy. As Jonathan explained earlier, the coffee industry's growth was in part due to slavery and access to free labour. You have, through colonisation, an invasive people. They either enslave or displace um, or annihilate indigenous people. They then really destroyed ecosystems uh, and habitats and brought in alien crops like coffee. Um, so, you know, coffee in the Americas, it's not indigenous to the Americas. The Americas today produce the bulk of the world's coffee. So it really is a story of trauma, both environmental and social. Um, you know, and, and, and slaves who worked many of these plantations um, for these, uh, these, these trauma crops. Thankfully, for the most part, slavery has ended, but coffee is grown in small communities and in quite hard to reach places in most instances. I think of them as spider webs when I think of coffee communities that sort of straddle the, the tropics of the globe. Is These are very rural communities, often in mountainous highlands. And that's our next stop. Welcome to Sakami Ranches Limited. We are a coffee farm mm -hmm. um, and we also produce uh, avocado and macadamia. We bought this land in 2000. I've done seed maize, I've done uh, uh, passion fruits, I've done French beans, mm -hmm. I've been there. So how we ended up doing, uh, that's how we ended up doing coffee, because we wanted something that's sensible and okay. sustainable. This is Gloria Gomeras. She farms in the highlands of Kenya, close to the border with Uganda. Uh, the people who came with the coffee set up in the three top um, mountains, as Mount Kenya, Mount Elgin, Mount Kilimanjaro. Mm -hmm. And we are the slopes of Mount Elgin right now. We are at 1,800 above the sea level. And this makes it such a conducive environment. It is amazing because of uh, the rain patterns we have. Uh, it, the, the rainfall we have from uh, six months uh, throughout the year. We have really good rains. We are at about um, 70 hectares of coffee. And that one we've also intercropped it with macadamia as a shade tree. Coffee likes being under the shade. We looked around and we wanted to work with the things that can work very well. We ended up doing uh, uh, macadamia because it also gives us production. When ah. we finish the coffee, the macadamia season comes in, okay. and also that we have best of both worlds. You know, intercropping macadamia and, and, and uh, coffee is a perfect match in the field, it's a perfect match in a cup, it's a perfect match uh, even when you're eating as a snack, because macadamia cookies are amazing when you're taking with the coffee. Macadamia is an amazing tree. It doesn't use so much water. Macadamia doesn't need any spray to maintain anything. It does not have any disease, obvious diseases that you need to use chemicals to spray. Okay. And um, it's very minimum in pest 
and uh, in, inside of um, coffee bushes, it's amazing. So our biggest challenge here is to have uh, diseases like liver rust. So that is one of the challenges. Uh, another challenge is um, availability of affordable products. As a group, we have approached a few companies like now BSF coming in. Uh, initially, we didn't know where to get them, but now that BSF is back, talking to us directly, we are very happy about that because now we can procure direct. And as a group, even the smaller people under us can benefit that simply because we buy volumes and we share it among ourselves. We have a lot of uh, bees, we keep a lot of bees, mm -hmm. and we use very uh, friendly chemicals to sustain the bees. And that one is contributing back to the environment and also intercropping our coffee with avocado to create the shade. So we have minimum uh, tillage. Mm -hmm. And we don't have, uh, with, the, with the coffees uh, that we do, we do a lot of naturals. That means we are not washing too much. We're using very little water. Our water, our solar system powers the, the factory and it also powers the water that we use. Putting up this farm where we create jobs from um, year in, year out, uh, throughout the year, it has really generated uh, revenue for our neighbors because now we find that there's demand for housing in the neighborhood uh, markets. The workers that we have, they also want a place to stay. So they are, that is a contributing factor to this, our neighbors. And the schools, also they're benefiting because these people, when they're moving from wherever they are to come and uh, bring children to work here, they need their children to go to school. So contribution to that, we've seen our little school, which is our neighboring school here, that we support very much in this farm. Uh, it has really increased, um, in number of students because the parents work here it's easier for them to pick the kids and go home we asked gloria who drinks the coffee that is the result of her and her team's hard work our biggest buyer is based in the netherlands and he distributes coffee all over europe uh, we have our coffee in um, denmark sweden uh, uh, where else uh, we have as far as france uk First is the cup quality, the consistency of producing that cup quality. It is amazing, Philly. Gloria is committed to helping fellow small-scale producers with a particular emphasis on empowering the women in her community. She has worked with female coffee producers in both Kenya and further afield, striving to elevate the status of women and advocating for small-scale producers. Our next stop on our coffee tour is one of the top 10 countries for global coffee production, which is Mexico. In the southern part of the country, along the Guatemalan border, the Chiapas region ranks first among the states in Mexico for coffee production. Here, 500,000 families depend on cultivating the beans for their livelihoods. Many of them are small producers. 51% of the population is rural and 65% falls below the poverty line, facing limited access to basic needs such as education, health and nutrition. The Carver project aims to bring innovation to these growers. BASF is working with UNESCO and partners along the value chain and the project focuses on improving the coffee growers' quality of life. It does this by increasing coffee yield and improving quality. Farmers are taught to apply good agricultural practices with culturally appropriate methods that respect community traditions. 
Gabriel Montesinos Ruiz farms in the village of Argentina in Chiapas. Previously, we did not use contour curves. We farmed taking into account what I saw my parents and my grandparents who cultivated it do. We farmed according to the slopes and everything led downwards and so everything was carried away by water. As the soil, the fertilizer, it was all carried away by water. We didn't even use natural barriers. We did nothing. We did it to the blessing of God. But nowadays we have consultants that help us and we use other methods. For example, level curves, which do not erode the land as much. Using the Carver project has helped us greatly tackle the problems we had with rust. Many varieties died and we found we had to replace our coffee plantations. But now, with the new methods, we have a better production. Now we nourish the plants more, the plants are already generating more money for us. Economically speaking, they are already generating more profit too. My parents saw this as a hobby crop. Today we are changing our crops from corn and bean plots, which practically removed all the trees, and we are replanting it with coffee. We are also adding shade fruit trees. Now we grow almost 100% coffee. Production today has increased by 50-60% to 60% from how we were previously. We also see ourselves benefiting more economically, but it is important that we continue to invest to protect the crops. The Carver project has been very positive because we see that our plants are already nourished and I think they are more resistant to the rust we have. It gives us greater economic results because before we would produce 10 quintiles in one hectare of coffee. Right now we can say we get a minimum of 30 to 40 quintiles of coffee and we also help the environment to be a little better because we are no longer removing trees. In fact, we are planting trees, sowing that life for our children, for our grandchildren. I have seen better results in every aspect. I also like how the plant acquires benefits from the treatment. The leaves are greener and cleaner. The plants mature well. I sell the crop when it is at its heaviest and is a little bigger. That's when the quality is best. Gabriel in Mexico's Chiapas region is optimistic about the future. New farming practices have improved not only his yields and his profits, but also he's improving the ecosystem for future generations. But like all crops, coffee faces big challenges in the coming decades from the volatile climate. Coffee historian Jonathan Morris has concerns for the future of the crop, but hopes that farmers, as farmers always do, will adapt to not only survive, but to thrive. The big threat to coffee and the big threat to farming of coffee is climate change. There is a a reasonably uh, well-respected estimate that by 2050, about half of the land that is currently used on which to buy to, to grow coffee would become unsuitable for coffee growing under current trends. So the coffee plant is quite delicate, particularly the the Arabica, the original plant. Uh, It won't tolerate frost of any kind, but it's also not that tolerant of high temperature and it's not that tolerant of dry temperatures. 
So it requires a particular sort of, you know, micro environment. And um, the threat of climate change is that for Arabica in particular, where it's currently grown, will become unsustainable. The Robusta coffee might be able to replace that in some instances, but Robusta too, it's not that great at handling significantly higher temperatures. Its real achievement is in being better at resisting pests. So what we are probably going to see is a significant degree of, uh, as it were, hybridization, seed breeding programs. We're seeing the reuse of old forms of coffee plants, other, other species of coffee that are perhaps more climate or disease tolerant, uh, even if they're much lower yielding seeing how we can work with hybrids to try and create more climate-resistant plants. That makes me think that the future for coffee is probably reasonably assured, but the future for coffee farmers is obviously far more precarious in that, you know, you can, we can change where the coffee is grown, but we can't necessarily move the farmers. And so the real threat is how those farmers are going to be helped or transitioned, as it were, to uh, these new, uh, you know, this new reality. Navigating a pathway through the coming decades is a tricky job, but Conrad Britz from Falcon Coffee sees some glimmers of hope. We're seeing regulation come in, much more attention by politicians and governments in, in creating a regulatory environment around sustainable claims. Um, and also looking at holding companies responsible for due diligence in their supply chains. So what that mean, would mean is saying to companies, we're going to need you by law to prove that how you source your raw materials around the world meets a certain minimum set of standards. So the European Union has recently introduced a deforestation regulation across uh, you know, cattle, soy, palm, timber, coffee, cocoa, cotton. You need to prove that the, there was no deforestation in your supply chains. Um, and if you are found to be wrong, you'll be fined 4% of your annual revenue. There are technologies being built and deployed that are becoming um, more efficient and more cost uh, efficient that are uh, making it possible for traceability back to geolocations and economic transparency, who got paid, how much, by who, for doing what in supply chain. The advent of this digital technology is is, is making that far more achievable um, in a very cost-effective ma manner. So I think the regulation and, and digital technology are going to really drive huge advances in, um, in sustainability. The 12.5 million coffee farmers make up a subset of, according to the UN's Food and Agricultural Organization, a subset of the 500 million smallholder farmers that produce 70% of the world's staple food crops. But we also need to understand these farmers are effectively stewards of our topsoil and water. Um, and that's really the responsibility we share, those of us who trade in and out of these communities is we share that stewardship. Um, so creating access to resources and connecting these communities to markets is 
considering certainly in coffee and some of the other crops that are grown in and around tropical rainforests and, and really sensitive ecosystems that, that hold a lot of the world's biodiversity, connecting them um, really creates a bridge to think about environmental impact, protecting biodiversity, you know, taking environmental responsibility uh, creates the ability for us to, to, to share envir environmental responsibility through these landowners as, as stewards of the topsoil and water. So those of us who struggle to wake up without a hot cup of coffee are really reliant on farmers, politicians, environmental stewards to do the right thing when it comes to ensuring that coffee is grown responsibly and sustainably. But is there anything else we can do? Well, yes, according to Fionn Stora-Jones. Jennifer's Coffee is a social enterprise that I set up with Ellen, a close friend and mentor of mine, who was running Fairtrade Wales when I interned there. And in my late teens, I got involved with a local charity called Dolan Fermio, which is Farming Link. And it was working to connect farmers in uh, mid Wales with uh, farmers in eastern Uganda to, to share expertise. After graduating university, I interned with Fairtrade Wales, an organisation set up by the Welsh Government to support and encourage and educate people in Wales about fair trade. And it's through that work that I met first Nimrod, who is the chairperson of the Mayak Cooperative, and then Jennifer, who's the vice chair. Uh, and this is a cooperative of over 2,000 farmers in eastern Uganda, where we now source coffee for Jennifer's Coffee. When we were working at Fairtrade Wales and we were hosting Jennifer, Nimrod and other Fairtrade farmers from around the world in Wales, the answer to the question when we asked, how can we best support you? was always to get more people to buy their coffee on fair trade terms. And an opportunity came a couple of years later to set up Jennifer's Coffee um, as a social enterprise to import coffee from Jennifer and the farmers of the Mayak Cooperative in Eastern Uganda into Wales. And we import coffee on fair trade terms and we build a community uh, of people who, who like to buy it and enjoy drinking it. The business model of a social enterprise is really about reinvesting profits back into the organisation so that we can grow what we're doing and in that grow the impact that we have on the farmers uh, in Uganda. So we work to support them to produce coffee um, to fair trade terms and our mission is really looking at how we can best support them to tackle the climate crisis. They've been seeing the effects of climate change where they are on Mount Elgon, uh, on the equator for, for decades. Um, but unfortunately, you know, their voices have not been heard in, in discussions. Ooh, we're starting to see that shift a little bit now globally, I think, where we see smallholder farmers and, and farmers more generally being part of those discussions. But it's really challenging. I was chatting to Jennifer just last week and the rain's not coming when it's supposed to. It's hitting flowers off the trees. They're not sure if the yield of cherries um, will be you know, sufficient this year. So there's a lot of challenges coming from the, the change in the climate, not just in terms of um, coffee yield and productivity, but also in terms of safety. 
we've seen landslides on the mountain become more and more ferocious as the weather becomes more extreme. And that's, you know, not costing only people's crops, but often their, their homes and their lives as well. So it's a huge challenge that the farmers are facing every day. And Jennifer's an amazing leader in her community, pushing uh, uh, sustainable farming practices and pushing her community to get involved in tree planting schemes and shifting away from fossil fuels to green energy. So she's really a champion and it's not common for a woman to, to lead at such a level that she is. And that's why we named the social enterprise after her, because she embodies you know, the values that we are trying to uh, ensure we have in the in the day-to-day operations of Jennifer's Coffee. With so much choice in a very busy coffee market, we can do our bit by making sure that we, as consumers, make the right choices when choosing our morning roast. So when you're shopping for coffee, look for the Fairtrade logo, plus any other environmental labels, such as Rainforest Alliance or the Sustainable Agricultural Network, And then you can sit back and enjoy the warm feeling of your morning brew. Thank you for listening to The Science Behind Your Salad with me, Jane Craigie. Next time, we're talking water. We'll be looking at some of the incredible ways farmers are working to reduce the amount of water that they use to protect this vital resource and safeguard it for future generations. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening.